Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 29th of March, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delight delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Uh, well, we're in we're in a prison island, Mike. We can't fly away for our holidays, um, but six is the magic number. Uh, yes, the rule of six has returned. Uh, there it is on screen. That is it. Uh, we still to this day do not know who actually initiated this number. Uh, we don't know what the veracity is of it. We don't know what scientific basis there is for six people being allowed to meet. Uh, uh, was it Neil Ferguson? Who was it? We don't really know. It's, it is one of the numbers on a dice, though. So I can imagine they rolled the dice and yes. it shows the number six and, and therefore it became the rule. That, that may well be the case. So uh, let's see what we're allowed to do now that we're being uh, uh, allowed out of uh, jail, not so free. Uh, we're allowed to meet others. You should not mix indoors except with your household or support bubble. You can meet outdoors, including in gardens and groups of six people or two households. Doesn't explain whether that means that 12 people can meet if there's six in each household. But anyway, that's uh, that's should be clear for everybody. Uh, no overnight stays. Uh, education. Uh, early years setting schools, colleges are open. Students, uh, university courses can return and so on. Uh, work and business. Well, everybody should work from home if they can. Nothing's changed there. Then we've got retail rules for retail rules for bars and, bars and pubs. Entertainment is closed, uh, but you are allowed to uh, do outdoor sporting facilities. I hear that some people were playing golf at midnight, plus one minute this morning. Uh, you're allowed to exercise outdoors. You're not allowed to exercise indoors. Uh, residential care, uh, one, st one name visitor still. Uh, traveling, you should uh, minimize travel. Uh, some of the mainstream press are finally catching up with uh, the rules for who's and when you're allowed to travel abroad and publishing that today. I think we covered that on Wednesday last week. Uh, so I'm glad to see them catching up again, about 50 different rules for what you can and can't do when you're traveling abroad at this point in time. Places of worship can remain open and uh, communal worship is permitted. I think David has a little bit on this uh, shortly, um, but uh, uh, weddings and funerals, up to 30 people as usual. Um, this is brilliant. This is step one of us getting out of jail free. So or not. it's arbitrary designed to be confusing, contradictory. The only thing this does, of course, is drags the country into an even deeper pit of depression, which is what it is supposed to do, because we're dividing and ruling, we're com confusing people, and at the end of the day, that makes them compliant and easy, control, easy to control. So psychological warfare by the British government on the public. Uh, but uh, it's more good news, uh, David, because in Scotland, you're allowed to go to church. Uh, but there seem to be some restrictions nonetheless. Well, the, the, the restrictions on going to church were, were being lifted by the government, uh, but two days early, so we saved two days on this, uh, a court decision ruled the entire lockdown of worship um, and prevention of worship in churches as unlawful. Uh, now, this is a very significant uh, victory. Um, so the Edinburgh News here reporting Scottish churches reopened for communal worship after important legal victory. Um, judge ruled that coronavirus regulations that forced the closure, closure were unlawful. Uh, 27 church leaders launched a judicial review at the court of session, arguing the Scottish government ministers acted out with their powers when ordering the closure, closure of places of worship under emergency uh, legislation. 
Judge Lord Bra uh, Braid uh, issued a judgment on Wednesday, finding the government's regulations were unlawful as they disproportionately interfered with the freedom of religion secured in the European Convention on Human Rights. Now, this is very much the point that uh, I was trying to make to the nice policeman uh, outside Holyrood a few weeks ago, uh, that the the even under the way that the government frames their, 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 their legislation and their regulations, even under their own statutes, um, their, their policy has been manifestly unlawful because it's disproportionate and they have an obligation to only reduce uh, human rights uh, to the very minimum um, extent necessary due to some um, you know, severe um, situation. And they manifestly haven't done so. So this is showing that the regulations as applied to churches are unlawful. But of course, the same argument applies to everything else the state has done under the banner of uh, coronavirus. Now, uh, there's, the interesting thing will be, how do the churches respond? Here is a, a, a tweet coming from a, a Twitter account called Restoring the Faith, Faith and um, uh, he's commenting on the church apartheid. Here we have two sets of pews um, with, with signs, and they're very interesting because we're subdividing the people between the fully vaccinated and the not yet vaccinated. But in both cases, it says masks and social distancing required in the pews. So you're subdivided, you're, we're, we're sorting the, 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 the sheep from the goats, the, 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 the chaff from the wheat, but we're then treating them both the same once we're sorted. A bizarre decision from that particular church. So we'll see, having won this legal victory, a very significant one at that, how the churches in Scotland and elsewhere actually behave towards their parishioners. Yeah, David, I, I just say that, of course, this should give them a, a, an excellent opportunity for really asking the questions and going for the government over what's been done. So for the first time, we could see the churches actually getting off their bottoms and showing some leadership, proper leadership. But I suspect that the clergy are still going to be under the control of the central church um, management structure. Um, and effectively, they won't do anything. That's my prediction, unfortunately. Well, I think that's probably right, Brian. We'll be coming on to this in other areas of life, and it probably applies to the church equally. Uh, but David, uh, let's have a look at uh, lockdown. And uh, well, Devi Sridhar uh, in Scotland wants more rules. More rules. Uh, Devi's starting to look like the uh, coronavirus version of Robert McNamara from the Vietnam War, the last true believer that all we need is one final push and more bombing and more troops and more death. And, and, and that'll sort things, even though it hasn't in all of the years up until now. Um, so she's starting to look like that. She's tweeting out here, huge risk watching a slow moving car crash as UK government stays open to France and other European countries, which have a South Africa variant. So here we see the, the, the variants have been used as the reason to be afraid now. That our main vaccine, AstraZeneca, doesn't work against. Uh, red list approach doesn't work. We need blanket international quarantine to avoid future lockdown. So we're going to close down everything internationally under Devi's rule. If anyone listens to Devi, and we'll need to see if they do. Uh, otherwise, well, we'll have to be locked down even more severely in the UK. So we've got a choice between being in a prison that's country shaped or being in a prison that's um, the length of your 
house or habitation. Yep. What can we say? That's all we can say to that. Well, let's uh, bring in this excellent photograph. Several people picked up on this, so the uh, Telegraph must really have, have uh, chosen a special image here, exclusive over 70s to get booster COVID vaccines from September. So we're seeing the more vulnerable parts of community, the elderly, but also children targeted and targeted and targeted for more and more vaccines. And uh, the man himself here holding up the little vial and uh, the vial file <laughs> and uh, saying that we're going to be pushing in more vaccines. So just wanted to pop that happy face on screen. But of course, we want to give the prize to the BBC because, um, well, several people also sent in this uh, from BBC Breakfast. So what are we doing? Well, apparently people are not having side effects from vaccines, according to the BBC. And of course, this is very worrying because apparently, yeah, could you be worried if you don't experience side effects because you need some side effects to reassure you that the vaccine's working? Uh -huh. uh, it's all pretty tricky, but have a look at this truly disgusting piece from the BBC. Yeah. Uh, Chris, I've got a question here for you from Jean. She asks, should we be worried if we don't have any kind of reaction or side effect after getting the vaccine, uh, nothing at all. Uh, she said she didn't even get a, a experience a sore arm. And we're told that, you know, the side effects are a sign that, that, that it's all working. So should she be worried that it's, it's not working for her? No, Jean shouldn't be worried at all. A straw poll among the, my uh, doctor friends who have had these vaccines reveals that about half of people have some side effects and about half don't. But that's not reflected in the studies, which show comprehensively the vast majority of people after a few weeks have antibodies, regardless of whether they have side effects or not. So I think Gene can be reassured having the vaccine is an, a major step towards becoming immune. Having the booster will pull most people over the line. You say after a few weeks of the jab, I was thinking about this because I had my jab what, two weeks ago, just over two weeks ago. Um, and I, I, I'm trying to work out kind of how soon, have we got any idea how soon your immunity builds up? I know you need the second jab and it's a couple of weeks after that that you get the maximum protection, but you know, how, how protected is somebody after two days, two weeks? Well, when you are exposed to either an infection for real or a vaccine, the immune system kicks in and begins to build a response. And in the same way as you don't magic up a house and have a house instantly, it takes a few weeks to lay the foundations, put the brickwork in, put the windows in, put the roof on. The immune system is exactly the same. You're building an immune response, which involves making lots of new cells, making antibodies, and then maturing that response. It's about revision and refining the response. So it's as good and precise and specific as it can be. So what we have based on the trials in terms of data is that after about two weeks, you can already see a difference in the susceptibility of people who have and haven't been vaccinated. And the same is true for things like flu vaccines. But by three weeks, that, that response is really very mature. So we know that by three weeks, people should have a very good level of protection. And if you then have a booster on top of that, up to 12 weeks later, it consolidates that protection and also helps to bring up to the line of protection people who might not have responded adequately to the first dose. Uh, well, there you have it. Um, uh, David, um, I think I'm going to come over to you as a, as a sort of professional connected to construction, as a structural engineer. Apparently, this COVID business, according to the BBC, is, is just the same as building a house, really. 
I, I, I didn't follow his line of reasoning there, Brian. I confess, he lost me at that point. I'm thinking, what is this idiot talking about? Uh, although there was some interesting points. 50% adverse reactions. He actually said his straw poll had shown 50% of people who had the vaccines had a reaction. That seems very high. Um, the bit about if I don't have an adverse reaction, am I still, um, am I still being helped with the vaccine? That was just absolutely uh, risable. But the other thing which was, was strangely lacking was any discussion of what happens to your immune system in the one to two weeks after receiving the vaccine. Because, of course, we've seen data that suggests that the immune system essentially collapses under the assault of the vaccine, leaving the people who receive it very vulnerable to infection for a week, 10 days after uh, receiving the vaccine. And we've seen a corresponding spike in, uh, in deaths, uh, particularly in the elderly, that followed one to two weeks to three weeks after um, uh, the vaccine rollout, all of which he was silent on. And he was just talking about, well, after three weeks, we're seeing this. Well, what about one to three weeks? What about that? Uh, the, the, the silence was significant. Uh, that, that is a, a very important point, uh, David, because uh, we were mentioning this on, on Friday's programme when they were debating the uh, extension of the emergency uh, legislation. Matt Hadcock was uh, specifically asked that question about statistics for, for people that have uh, received the vaccine and then have died within three weeks after that. Um, and, uh, and he didn't have an answer. So anybody didn't see the, the beginning of Friday's program, go and watch it. But the other thing that he said there, which is really uh, disturbing and disingenuous in a sense, is that uh, he, he said that it was a good thing that uh, with the uh, vaccine uh, immune response, that it's as specific as it can be. Well, that is a real problem because if you make the immune response specific to a particular strain of a virus, then of course, as we've made the point over the last couple of weeks, that puts you at risk from other uh, strains of the same virus. This happens with flu vaccine. It happens every year with flu vaccine that, that people, it's one name for it is pathogenic, pathogenic priming. It, if you then get exposed to another strain of the flu, uh, the impact on that on you is much stronger or can be much stronger in many cases. So uh, I was very interested that he was uh, quite so determined that it had to be a specific response because that uh, actually drives the idea that uh, the South African variant, as Debbie Sridhar was suggesting, that the AstraZeneca jab doesn't work with that at all. Yeah, I think he told the little story about building a house because he didn't know the answer to the actual protection of the, of the uh, vaccine. And he was simply stalling for time by coming out with that complete load of nonsense. Um, but essentially what the BBC was doing there is saying, well, there's no real side effects to the vaccines that the public uh, should worry about. There's some minor ones, but maybe you don't even get any side effects at all. Well, let's contrast what the BBC has tried to say in that appalling clip uh, with this lady talking about the reality of what happens when there are serious adverse effects to vaccines. He had his first vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine, on the 3rd of March. Um, the next day, he came, became feeling a bit unwell, a bit of an headache, went to bed for a couple of hours, um, got back up, 
And then he felt fatigued for the rest of the week. He felt just really drained, his legs did. And we were just putting it down to side effects of the vaccine. But the 14th day from that, from the third, his legs were getting worse. He, on the Wednesday, he felt like they were numb. Um, early hours Thursday morning, he was woke, he woke up with really numb legs and pins and needles in his feet. And he also had pins and needles in his hands. His bottom lip went numb and his skin was very touch sensitive. On the Friday, his legs deteriorated more and I had to pick him up from work. He couldn't walk, oddly. We um, then, he rang his GP who didn't take the reaction seriously. He was then referred to go to the local and accident emergency centre. His back pain, he also got then lower back pain on the Friday, which became, started being relevant. And by Friday evening, his legs had completely gone and I was carrying him and picking him up off the floor at home. So a big difference there between what the BBC is trying to tell the uh, general public in the UK and the reality of the the individuals who have now got serious um, side effects from the vaccines. And I can tell you that the gentleman, um, that lady is talking about, her husband has been on a neurological ward for some time now. He's experienced excruciating pain. Uh, he, he can't move the lower part of his body. And uh, on the ward, we are told there are another six people with similar adverse effects uh, from the vaccine. These have been diagnosed. So this is not a question of do these things exist or not. These have been diagnosed by the uh, doctors on that ward. And that is just one neurological ward where we believe there are six, possibly seven patients with problems. But apparently, according to the BBC, no difficulty. Now, I'm just going to say we are going to... Um, uh, we're going to put out the whole of the interview with Nicola. Um, it is something which I think every single UK column viewer listener should listen to, uh, because this lady is one of many people now coming forward saying that there's something badly wrong because people are being damaged. The NHS is not speaking about it. The government is not speaking about it. The media, the BBC is not speaking about it. There's nobody to speak up and say what is happening. And that is the reason this lady came to the UK column, which we take as a huge compliment to the work that we do. And uh, we believe that uh, this story needs to be told because, of course, it affects many other people. Now, um, the original diagnosis of this gentleman was changed to Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a rapid onset muscle weakness caused by the immune system damaging the peripheral nervous system. At one stage, the gentleman involved was in such pain that he couldn't stand to be put through a scan, which was obviously part of the procedure for the uh, ward to try and find out what was happening to him. A bit more of uh, an explanation here. Your immune system, which usually attacks only invading organisms, begins attacking the nerves. Uh, the damage prevents nerves from transmitting signals to your brain, causing weakness, numbness or paralysis. Now, remember, of course, this is just one section of the adverse effects which are listed by the MHRA under their yellow card system. Uh, and they include clotting, coronaries, neurological problems, deafness, blindness, 
muscle uh, paralysis, it goes on and on. Now, we have, of course, been following the MHRA data. And uh, if we look on the statistics, we can see here that Guillain-Barre syndrome is actually listed. 36, this is for uh, AstraZeneca, 36 in total with one fatality. And if we look at uh, down here, just to emphasize that this is only one tiny part of the data about the damage that these vaccines are doing, we've got uh, cerebrovascular accident, 85 with seven deaths. Well, we're not seeing this on the BBC News on a daily basis. Absolute silence, because each one of the numbers on this page represents a human tragedy. If we jump across to um, uh, Pfizer here and uh, highlight the same area for Guillain-Barre syndrome, we've got 11 with one fatality. And uh, if we also look down here, we've got 71 for the uh, cerebrovascular accident, 71 with three deaths. Absolute silence from the BBC. David, I find the news increasingly difficult to deliver because it is so apparent that we have a system now where the British government utterly lying to the general public. And of course, the propaganda arm to carry those lies and lies by emissions uh, is the BBC. How, how can we describe this organisation? Well, words start to fail, fail us when we're trying to describe this organisation. Contrast, if you would, um, the silence over the deaths caused by the vaccine, uh, vaccines with the scaremongering uh, in the early days of, uh, of, of coronavirus, where we were having video uh, footage from inside hospitals. We were having... Um, uh, uh, long, long, um, long clips with people struggling for breath and people on ventilators and people looking distressed. We're not seeing any of that for the vaccine damage. Um, we're seeing nothing. We're seeing complete, a complete absence of reporting. Now, the BBC are well aware that if they were to use a similar technique um, that they had used to promote COVID, um, to oppose the vaccines, that they could close down the vaccine um, process very, very quickly because they could generate the same degree of fear in the country over vaccines that they have over COVID. Uh, but of course, they won't do that because in the, 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 that's not the agenda. There is a narrative, and the narrative is to close down any concern, any news, any information, or any opposition to the vaccine programme. It always has been. Uh, they have a policy not to give opponents to the vaccine programme any airtime or any um, credibility via their network. The truth is not of interest to the BBC. Facts are not of interest to the BBC. What is of interest is repeating the narrative and being the propaganda organ that they're paid £5 billion a year to be. Uh, David, thank you for that description, which I couldn't uh, disagree with at all. Let's have a look at uh, really the frustration for uh, Nicola Shingler, the lady who, who you've just heard in that audio clip. Uh, she sent an email to Matt Hancock. Uh, this was on the 19th of March. Dear Matt Hancock, I wish to share my concerns 
with you regarding the reporting of reactions to the AstraZeneca vaccine. My husband is having unusual and concerning symptoms presently after receiving the vaccine on Friday. His legs are aching badly and was awoken with numbness and pins and needles. Also, his lower lip has been infected with the same sensation. My concerns are that on calling our GP this morning, no urgency to address or report these reactions was given as he was told a GP will call him by tomorrow. There seems to be no urgency to assess or report reactions of this vaccine on patients. And I logically thought there would be. Well, not at our doctor's surgery anyway. This leaves me feeling very worried about my husband's health and leaves doubt to whether I will take the vaccine when it's my turn to do so, as I do have a previous history of DVT. This lack of confidence in my own GP in reporting health concerns and reactions to the vaccine is concerning, and I hope you can address GP practices widely on being quick and efficient in responding to this. Currently, we cannot go to our practice to be seen by a GP. Patients are still being addressed by telephone calls. I hope you can look into this matter with urgency to hopefully only promote and gain public confidence. Well, that was a very nice and very polite email. Um, Nothing was heard. So this was what she sent on the 24th of March. Thanks a lot, Matt Hancock. My husband is now lying in a neurology ward because of this AstraZeneca vaccine. So this is the truth about the damage that's, uh, that's occurring. Now, the UK column was very active at the end of last week, and uh, we got on to NHS England, and uh, we challenged them about what was going on. So this was uh, an email that we sent. As a journalist, I'm being contacted by a range of people reporting serious vaccine adverse effect experience personally, and or by relatives, friends, and work colleagues. The effects include death, together with serious neurological issues, anaphylaxis and other severe medical conditions, necessitating both intensive care and specialist hospital treatment. The individuals state that at no time were they warned of such adverse effects before having the vaccine and their claims appear correct in that neither the NHS nor the vaccination centre teams are warning of any adverse effects over and above minor vaccine site irritation and feeling poorly for 24 hours. This tragic list of damaged individuals is the human side of the MHRA vaccine adverse reaction data, which clearly indicates a vast range of both serious and more minor post-vaccine adverse reactions as recorded to date. The direct concern of these individuals is reinforced by NHS professionals who are also coming forward to warn of the intake of vaccine damaged patients. And then we sent two key questions. Who within NH England holds responsibility for informing the general public of serious vaccine side effects so that the public can make an informed choice in line with NHS policy in their decision to be vaccinated? And who within NHS England holds due diligence and duty of care for those patients now receiving specialist NHS treatment for the serious vaccine uh, adverse reactions from which they're suffering in view of the fact that they were not warned of possible serious side effects in advance of their vaccinations. So those were the questions. Uh, We gave them a a deadline, which was in fact on Saturday, Uh, but the response really is this. So we might as well quote the boss, the chief executive of NHS England, 
Does he have any concerns about vaccine side effects? Doesn't know, doesn't appear to care and can't be bothered to reply. And if we want to contrast his attitude, we might have a look at this one we were sent. So Jeremy Hunt uh, tweeting out here, AstraZeneca is a great company and I'm proud that uniquely it's foregoing all profits from its vaccine for which it gets little credit. Thank you, CEO Pascal Suarez. Uh, for not storing up riches on earth. You're a great credit to your adopted home com uh, com country. Uh, so pretty nauseating there, um, but I'm going to say we've also put out this uh, video interview. Uh, so you can find that on the uh, front page of the UK column. No, no smoke without fire, part three, vaccine adverse reactions. And I'm speaking with uh, Debbie Evans, the former nurse. We're looking at the MHRA uh, vaccine adverse reactions data. So we are looking at the official data and we are highlighting the catalogue of disastrous effects to members of the public, including, of course, many deaths, which, as we've said several times already, are simply not being reported. Um, so, David, if we go up uh, to the north of the border, um, what's the situation with respect to vaccines and the potential for compensation? Should there be adverse reactions if you are private well, this, on private health care? Yes. So this is very interesting. So this is a, a person who, who subscribes to Bupa. So, so they have a private health care uh, scheme in place. And they wrote to Bupa and said, well, if I take the government vaccine, if I take the NHS vaccine, uh, and I'm injured. Um, am I covered via my medical insurance? And uh, a mere three months later, um, Bupa managed to concoct the appropriate response and wrote back. And they said, uh, quote, I confirm that side effects arising from the COVID-19 vaccine are not covered under our exclusion for complications from excluded or restricted conditions, treatments and experimental treatment exclusion. So Bupa with some justification, are viewing this as an experimental vaccine and uh, you are not covered by your private medical insurance if you're injured. I thought that was a very interesting data point. Now, we're now going on to a video many people may have seen. This is, this is uh, Kirsty Miller, a nurse from uh, the Dundee area, uh, Tayside area, who has uh, recently resigned from her post over the way that uh, the... the, the, the matters relating to COVID and the vaccines uh, and the treatment uh, of um, both vaccine-damaged people and of, of people suffering from various ailments is, is being handled. Um, she made a, a statement um, explaining why she was resigning. Uh, we've got a couple of clips from it uh, here. Hi, my name's Kirsty. I'm a staff nurse. I'm a Band 5 RGN. I worked in the NHS. Tonight I done my last shift on the bank. I resigned from my post, my permanent post, about five weeks ago. I can no longer be part of the lies and the corruption by the government, not by the NHS. I mean, I've absolutely loved working there and working with amazing teams, amazing nurses, amazing, amazing people. But, um, Silence is consent. Lockdown is affecting people more than this virus ever has. Ever. There's so many of us trying to speak out. There's so many of the colleagues that I've worked with are scared. 
they're scared of losing their job that's what's going on i honestly don't know what else is going to stop this because the vaccine rollout is going to be happening to our children i have seen traumatic injuries from the vaccine they're not getting reported to the yellow card scheme they're treating the symptoms, not asking why, why it's happening. It's just treating the symptoms and when you speak about it, you're, you're dismissed. Like you're crazy. Now, uh, Kirsty went on, I, I spoke to her at some length um, about what she'd seen and uh, she, she gave me a huge amount of information, a couple of things that I'd like just to highlight. Uh, firstly, um, she was seeing a huge number of changes in how COVID was being treated. It would vary day to day, it would vary ward to ward, hospital to hospital. It didn't seem to have any consistency at all. Um, the, the hospitals were quiet, they were consistently quiet. Some wards were being closed during this period the the idea that there was a there was a pandemic just did not tally with what they were seeing inside the hospitals. There was an an upswing in hospital admissions after the vaccine was rolled out, um, and she described uh, some of the 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 common uh, effects she was seeing of the vaccine um, uh, under uh, the Pfizer vaccine. It was things like delirium in the elderly. Uh, there were they were off their legs, they weren't able to walk, um, low heart rate, very low temperature, um, freezing cold in the peripheries, uh, lots of headaches. Uh, under AstraZeneca, there was even more delirium, um, bowel obstruction, incontinence, um, and low platelets, very low platelet counts, giving a rash extensively all over the body. And, and it was so distinctive that she was able to tell which vaccine people had had before they before asking, because the side effects were um, characteristic of the vaccine. Um, not only was this not being recorded um, via the yellow card system, in a lot of the paperwork that she was asked to fill in, there simply wasn't anywhere to record the vaccine status of the patient. So this information is not being gathered. It's being concealed. It's being ignored, um, and it's it's clearly visible to people at the clinical front line. Uh, David, I'm just going to reinforce this once again. If people didn't watch Friday's uh, news program, uh, the first ten minutes of it or so, when you look at the uh, bit of video that we showed of of uh, Matt Hancock being asked about the deaths within three weeks of of having received the vaccine. It was clear that that data is not being gathered. And if you don't gather the data, then of course there's no way to, to actually make a proper assessment of, of what the effects of any particular treatment are. Um, and uh, let's just remind ourselves once again, how much money did the MHRA spend on their new AI tracking system so that they could uh, actually re report properly uh, the adverse and track the adverse effects of the vaccine? Several, well, I can't remember, a couple of million pounds, I, th I think, if I remember rightly. Um, so where is this AI system? The, if the AI system isn't being fed the data, then it can't, uh, it can't use its machine learning specialism to, uh, 
to produce some results. So uh, it's this is uh, really the key point at the end of the day, isn't it? If you don't gather the data, you can't get an yeah. assessment. And you're struggling to find the words to describe this, Mike, because it is so appalling what's going on in our chat box today. Several people are, are mentioning eugenics. They are recognising that there is something happening which is deeply sinister to the UK public. Uh, we certainly believe that this analysis is correct. The government is doing something which needs to be brought to the surface. And at the end of the day, we can see there are people who certainly need to be brought into court. I phoned NHS England's media team this morning to see, well, to give them a chance really to respond to the emails that we sent last week. I was met with absolute callous indifference to the number of people who've been now damaged and have died and are in hospital as a result of vaccines. Uh, the callousness was just unbelievable. I was told with arrogance that it's the media team that respond to questions like this. And I was then asked if I could give the NHS the data on the individual suffering. When I said, but it's your data because it's come from the MHRA, I don't think that the lady who was part of the media team speaking to me uh, had ever read that data herself. Mm. So uh, a major shakeup needed, but people suffering. David, quickly. It's it's very striking that uh, the whistleblower on vaccine damage, um, who's campaigned for years about this, Andrew Wakefield, he wrote a book titled the titled the the accusation that was made against him. It was titled "Callous Disregard." That's what he was accused of showing. Uh, he was innocent of that charge, but we see there most certainly is callous disregard. Yes, uh, and just. Uh... Just to remind everybody of the latest uh, uh, Office for National Statistics information on vaccine hesitancy and who is most hesitant. Uh, well, white British are considered the uh, datum point for this. Uh, and so if we find people of uh, mixed ethnicity are more hesitant than uh, you or I are, David, uh, Asians about the same as for mixed, for, for mixed uh, ethnicity, uh, black or black British are the by far the most hesitant uh, of everybody, uh, and Chinese uh, a little bit more than uh, than the mixed or the Asian. So that's where we are with that. That's where we are with that, as you say, uh, Mike. But this is what's happening behind the scenes. So a big thank you to the viewer who found this one, a document pointing out that Public Health England has been working with the Health Protection Research Unit at the London School of Hygiene and the Policy Research Unit at Newcastle University to track vaccine acceptance. And they're particularly interested to see people's reaction to increasing vaccinations for children. And what's the overall agenda to maximize the vaccine uptake in under vaccinated groups? So they're not interested in looking at the vaccine damaged people. They're just an irrelevance, more money spent on actually um, getting the propaganda out to get more people vaccinated. Um, well, if uh, Boris Johnson is still humming and hawing about whether there are going to be vaccine passports, stroke certificates, one minute he's saying there aren't, the next minute it's clear that there will be. Uh, well, the United States seems to be in exactly the same boat. So this headline from CNN saying uh, Biden administration working develop to develop a system for people to prove they've been vaccinated. Uh, and it says uh, the Biden administration had previously said that the federal government should not be involved in efforts to create a vaccine passport system. 
to verify that people have been vaccinated. So that's uh, they've clearly reversed course as well. It seems like every government is doing the same. No, 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 we're not doing vaccine passports. Don't worry about that. And then as time goes on, uh, the, the more and more information comes out suggesting that we are going to have them. Uh, and indeed we will. Uh, and well, no less than TB himself has decided to wade in on this discussion. So let's have a look at this. I think you will get to the stage where it's going to be very hard for people to do a lot of normal life unless they can prove their vaccination status. Yeah. I, I think you'll find a situation where countries say to you, you're not coming in here yeah. unless we see whether you've either been vaccinated, you've had the disease and have got antibodies, or you've had a recent high quality test. And so if people, people have got to understand vaccination is going to be in the end, your route to liberty. So vaccination is going to be, in the end, your route to liberty. Vaccine passports are part of that. And what was very interesting was that he said that if you hadn't had a vaccine, it might require a high-quality test. Now, we're going to come on to uh, testing in a minute, but obviously uh, what is being used, what is being ruled out for uh, getting permission to go back to school if you're, or if you're a teacher to be employed at the school. And increasingly, as we'll see, if you're an employer and you want to make sure that your, uh, your employees are suitable to have on site, of course, they're rolling out uh, lateral flow tests for that, which are not considered high quality tests, despite the fact they have a better reputation uh, as with regard to false positives uh, than PCR tests too. So um, not quite sure where that's going. They're really building a narrative which is going to require vaccine or nothing. But let's uh, quickly move on to this. Now, on Friday, we mentioned uh, that Matt Hancock had announced the formation of the new UK Health Security Agency, and we were... Uh, making the point, uh, the range of areas that it was going to be uh, operating in. Again, if you haven't seen that, do go watch Friday's programme. Uh, very much uh, technocracy being built. Well, another day, another agency. Uh, this time it's called the Office for Health Promotion. Uh, and what's this all about? This is a new Office for Health, health Promotion. It will lead national efforts to improve and level up the public's health. So this is a great reset language once again. Uh, it will help ministers design and operationalize, if there is such a word, a step change in public health policy. And here's the key. The new approach will see action across government to improve the nation's health. Well, is it going to be across government? No, it's going to be much more than that. Uh, let's see what it is. Uh, it's going to be based in the Department of Health and Social Care once again. Uh, it's going to encompass existing UK-wide activities including operational agreements supporting pandemic management, the whole UK role of uh, the uh, new Joint Biosecurity Centre and so on. Uh, it will enable more joined up sustained action between national and local government, the NHS and cross government, uh, where much of the wider determinants of health are. Did you know, David, that the wider determinants of health are in uh, the NHS, cross government, local government and National government? Did you realise that that's uh, that's what it was about? No, I thought it was nutrition, um, proper rest, uh, clean water, excellent sanitation, and sufficient housing. Uh, that's what you would think. But uh, so, what what is this about? Well, of course, this is more merging of government institutions. So this is more interoperability, uh, more uh, fusion, as the government likes to call it. Uh, and, uh, well, what are we building? Uh, a single point command and control structure? No, it's a full-blown dictatorship, Mike. There is no question that a dictatorship is now 
uh, formed, but it's it's taking all the power it needs. There is no question of that. Yes. Now, last week we were talking about uh, uh, mortality statistics and how many people have actually died of COVID-19. Uh, I would uh, ask everybody to go and read this article on the UK column published uh, last night, A Deceptive Construction, Why We Must Question the COVID-19 Mortality Statistics, another fantastic article from Ian Davis. Uh, this is really highlighting why we were suggesting on last week's programme that rather than the 126,000 people that have died uh, allegedly by COVID-19, uh, that's the government's numbers, that the number was much more likely to be around uh, 15 to 18,000. So please go and read that and any feedback would be very much appreciated. Now, uh, if you like what the UK Column is doing and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there, but also please do share our material that's on the various platforms and so on. I would also say audience worldwide growing and the number of countries is growing. It's becoming particularly interesting how some viewers are popping up in some quite small countries, but they've found the UK column, so we're very pleased. Uh, well, what do we bring on screen here? Uh, one of our viewers is wondering if we know of any class action lawsuits against care homes. Uh, they say that they've been turned away from their mother's care facility because they wouldn't take their COVID-19 test and hadn't made an appointment. And uh, they're saying this is against our human rights. So if there's anybody out there who knows about such action, perhaps you'd like to let us know at the column and we will uh, inform people more widely. And um, I just want to remind people of an excellent article here, uh, which is about uh, COVID, but it's also to do with global cities. This is Mark Anderson, uh, who's been reporting from America, excellent article. And fairly shortly, there will be a video interview with him as well on this very subject. Um, no, the Express uh, ran this headline this morning, Climate of Fear Prevents Experts from Questioning the Handling of the Pandemic. Uh, and so what are they saying? Uh, much, much abuse has come from within academic or professional circus, circles, uh, with one professor saying debate was becoming impossible because we're not talking to each other properly. Uh, we're being thrown into confrontational positions. Uh, they say that leading experts have withdrawn from the debate over COVID and over lockdown after having reputations smeared, jobs lost, and even families threatened, raising questions about pandemic policy. Another expert has been sidelined from a vital role in a government advisory group, while senior NHS staff have been threatened with disciplinary measures for questioning the government approach online or in the media. Now, they quote quite a number of people in this article, so let's just run through some of the quotes. Uh, Jonathan Sumption here saying, scientists and politicians have been subjected to an extraordinarily unpleasant campaign of personal abuse. Uh, from the very moment I started to make these points, I began to get emails from politicians who agreed with what I had to say, but they themselves didn't dare speak out. This is really an incredible statement. If a politician, an MP, who's supposed to be there to do nothing other than speak out on issues, isn't prepared to speak out, well, there's an issue over the climate of fear that they're existing in, but there's also uh, an issue over their personal, uh, well, uh, their personal position and whether they should be an MP or not. But anyway, he went on to say people ought to be entitled to uh, voice their differences of opinion, and that's uh, that is true. Uh, so let's see what Sir Graham Brady, Brady had to say. He said it's essential that doctors and scientists are able to speak freely and to debate these issues without facing a witch hunt from the media, NHS trusts or academic bodies that uh, employ them. 
Um, and the next one is Robert Dingwall, who's from uh, Nottingham Trent University, who said, following the science is never neutral. It's always shaped by the connections to decide what counts as science. And he was really saying that uh, uh, there are various networks that seem to be attempting to control uh, the narrative. Uh, and then finally, here we've got Desmond Swain, who's saying, I've received a large amount of correspondence from very eminent scientists and clinicians disagreeing with the conclusions that SAGE and the chief medical officer have come to. Uh, what I find very worrying is that with very few exceptions, they say, please keep my details confidential. Uh, and uh, so, David, that's really the response from uh, a number of people, a number of quite significant people that the Express is highlighting here. I've got a number of concerns about this, aside from the, the, the issues that the, this raises. Uh, we do see these types of articles appear from time to time in the mainstream press. They get published, they're there for a day, and then they disappear. And they're very much swamped by the opposite uh, position. Uh, aside from that, we need to help to get these, these occasional articles much more uh, over, seen much more broadly because uh, the, the points are very important. Yes, and, and will, the, will the Express hold the line on that? Will they themselves publish dissident scientific opinion? Will they themselves stand up against the intimidation that they will receive should they do so? Um, will they receive a phone call from someone in the government suggesting that perhaps their advertising revenue would be adversely affected by their editorial line if they do? Um, we need to, each of us, resist the fear. Um, it's very worrying that you're describing their politicians being too frightened to speak out. That would be lack of moral fibre because that is their job. They are meant to be there to protect the people and they have an obligation to speak out and not just to look after their own jobs and their own skins. Um, it's really not good enough. Uh, particularly in a, when they're in a position that they really can't be kicked out of their jobs, they may find themselves being unelected at the next election, but in the meantime, they can't really be well, they're, their jobs. they've got a wonderful job at the moment because they can be at home, like our local MP, Mr. Streeter, looking at the daffodils coming up and working remotely and taking his big fat paycheck. So it's very good for them. I just add to this particular subject of fear in Westminster, the first time I started to understand it was uh, when we were um, meeting MPs trying to get something done to stop the abuse of children. And it was quite surprising how many of those MPs would want to conduct business somewhere uh, away from the crowds out on the veranda or in the back corridor because they said this is a dangerous subject to talk about. There was, there was palpable fear amongst those individuals. So we're wondering what the government is. We're describing it as a dictatorship. We've got MPs saying they're fearful of that system. That's another characteristic of a dictatorship dictatorships attack their own people. We're seeing that happen. I think we've got good indication of what's happening. You would call it the government of occupation, David. It's an occupying power and it does operate by fear and it operates by fear and the control of information. And um, the, so much is done there for that's, um, it's done without actually having to instruct people. Uh, people yeah. will inform in one another without being told to. People will self-censor and silence their own opinions without being told to. Once the atmosphere exists, people respond. Indeed. Well, at least the Telegraph here um, had a headline which summed it up. The government's 
campaign of fear threatens our freedom. We don't really need to look further into that article because the headline says it all, that the campaign of fear is coming from the British government itself. Um, so we were talking about testing. Uh, you'll be glad to know that the government has decided that uh, rapid home testing is going to be avail made available free of charge for all businesses with over 10 employees who can't offer uh, on-site testing. Uh, businesses are going to have to register by the 12th of April to get these free tests and apparently over 60,000 businesses have done that already. Um, so what was Matt Hancock saying about this? Uh, he's saying rapid testing is a vital part of our roadmap, helping us to lift, cautiously lift restrictions on our economy and society. Well, I'm sure it is a vital part of the roadmap because I'm pretty certain that the roadmap is to maintain uh, lockdown. And of course, one way to maintain lockdown is to push out as many tests as you possibly can, as broadly as you possibly can, because that maximizes the opportunity for false positives. Yeah. Now, where does that take us? Um, David, uh, the World Health Organization. Yes, just want to emphasize again that the, the World Health Organization put out this information notice um, on the PCR test. Uh, this was dated uh, 20th of January, 2021. Um, and it, it highlights that the World Health Organization's organization guidance states that careful interpretation of what they term here, weak positive results, is needed. The cycle threshold needed to detect a virus, this is how many cycles of, uh, of the PCR test do they go through. Um, the cycle threshold to detect a virus is inversely proportional to the patient's viral load, where test results do not correspond with the clinical presentation, i.e. you have no symptoms, a new specimen should be taken and retested using the same or different um, NET technology. So this is very strange language. It's not very clear on the surface what they're actually saying, but what they're saying is that, that, that there are serious problems with the test. Um, but if we go on to a, another paper here, that, that it's very much more explicit as to what the problem is. This is an external peer review of the PCR test to detect SARS-CoV-2. Um, it reveals 10 major scientific flaws uh, in the molecular and methodological level, consequences, of, consequences for false positive results. A, a small extract from this paper. The number of amplification cycles, this is the CT value. It should be noted that there's no mention anywhere in, in the paper they're reviewing of a test being positive or negative, or indeed what defines a positive or negative result. These types of virological diagnostic tests must be based on a standard operating procedure, including a validated and fixed number of PCR cycles after which the sample is deemed positive or negative. The maximum reasonably reliable CT value is 30. Remember that number, 30 cycles. Above a CT of 35, rapidly increasing numbers of false positives must be expected. Highlight PCR data evaluated a false positive after a CT value of 35 cycles are completely unreliable. In other words, to say there's no successful virus, virus isolation for SARS-CoV-2 at these high CT values. Um, and the critical number here, at CT equals 35, the value we used to report a positive result for PCR is less than 3% of the cultures actually turning out to be positive. So that's above, above 35 cycles, 97% false positive rate. That's what that's saying. 
Um, so the question is, what is the CT value used in the UK? Because remember, anything above 30 is dodgy, anything above 35 is garbage. So here we have the National, the Office for National St Statistics being asked the question, COVID-19 PCR positive test results with cycle threshold. You asked, can you provide the entire data set of all positive cases and deaths with the cycle threshold added? We, the, national, the Office for National Statistics, we said, due to statistical disclosure control, we would not be able to publish the full data set of the threshold cycles for each positive case, as this would constitute personal data. So no, you're not allowed to know. It goes on to say, if you're a research body, we might let you see the data. But no, we're not telling you. Well, we've got a, a, an, an FOI request here that a uh, colleague up in Scotland put into uh, the Scottish Government asking the same question. Freedom of Information uh, Act, um, the uh, request was, what's the number of cycles? Um, each manufacturer of the PCR test will recommend a different maximum amplification cycle number when determining the presence of SARS-CoV-2, but a maximum of around 40 amplification cycles is typically recommended by test manufacturers. So that confirms that the data is garbage. And um, uh, Professor Michael Chosodowski, uh, 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 writing in uh, uh, for Global Research and reprinted here in the lourockwell.com uh, site, he summarizes this. He says, invalid positives is the underlying concept. This is not an, an issue of weak positives and risk of false positive increases. What is at stake is a flawed methodology which leads to invalid estimates. And these are the statistics which are used to measure the progression of the so-called pandemic. Above an amplification cycle of 35 or higher, the test will not detect the virus. Therefore, the official COVID numbers are meaningless. It follows there's no scientific basis for confirming the existence of a pandemic, which in turn means that the lockdown and economic measures which have resulted in social panic, mass poverty and unemployment, alleged to, allegedly to curtail the spread of the virus, have no justification whatsoever. Uh, yeah, and indeed, the, therefore, the vaccine programme has no justification whatsoever. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. So we'll just uh, add in to remind people that, of course, the NHS, under its operational considerations, says that informed consent should be recorded as a required field on the pinnacle point of the care system. This is when vaccines are being given. The patient should be provided with written information about the vaccine. But of course, when do they get the information about the vaccine? They get it after they've been vaccinated. So therefore, they can't make the informed choice. Uh, these are some of the links that the um, NHS COVID vaccination centre staff direct you to when you ask about vaccine side effects. But all of these lead you through into a loop. And the only side effects that you see are these here, which are very minor compared to the MHRA yellow card uh, side effects. Um, so we've got pain, we've got tenderness, we've got headache, uh, maybe a bit of muscle pain, chills, a bit of joint pain, a bit of fever, a bit of in injection site swelling. Um, so these are all relatively minor and don't bear any relationship re relation to the true MHRA data 
uh, in the yellow card system, but that is hidden from you. And uh, one operative told me when I called the line that I shouldn't really look at the MHRA data because the only true data was the data given out by the NHS. And uh, we'll, we'll play a little bit of that conversation uh, for our audience for UK Column News for Wednesday. Um, okay, where does that take us? Um, well, sorry, I should have added this one in, Mike, because just on the subject of data, this is Betha Times, over 900 died after receiving COVID-19 vaccine, but the experts say that the data has been misinterpreted. How often do we see that? And, um, and this one, yeah, sorry, uh, this one as well, I couldn't resist, sent in to us, so thank you for the eagle-eyed person, Director General Joint Biosecurity Centre, Department of Health and Social Care, salary £130,000, the role is analytical and senior leadership. So, And you can be anywhere in the UK? You can, you can be anywhere, and as long as you keep pumping out the... Uh, data that we are showing you is flawed, you can presumably earn your £130,000 or £10,000 a month. Uh, David, uh, bills have been posted. Yes, I just want to highlight that there are heroes out there and uh, one of them has been putting up uh, some messages uh, in a vandalised bus shelter, I think it was, and it says, turn off your TV. Uh, caused by the COVID vaccine, 506 deaths, 96 strokes, uh, 40 people are blind, 50 are deaf, and 22 have suffered miscarriages. Uh, and they continue and ask questions like, where did the flu go? Yeah, that's a very good question. And to highlight the PCR fraud. So whoever's doing this, uh, thank you very much. Every word true. Um, and on Friday, we mentioned uh, Alex Belfield. Uh, you wanted to point something particular out about uh, about this group of police that turned up. Yes, this is a shot taken by by Alex Belfield from from his home, looking down at the police who were about to to beat to to destroy his door and break into his house. Um, and it 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 was pointed out to me that they have no identification numbers. I thought, gosh, that's true. They've taken off their ID numbers before, before undertaking this raid. Um, is now, that, is implications... that... Yeah, sorry, David, is that correct? Because what, if you look on the police van there, it says police TSG. So this is a tactical support group. And I just, I'm not entirely sure exactly whether uh, they've taken them off or whether tactical support, support officers don't wear them in the first place. Just Alex well, normally... either way, either way, it's either it's either worrying specifically for Mr. Belfield's case, or or it's worrying for all of us. But they're not identified, yes. and that means that they're not, and they're masked. So they're now they're now hiding their identity in multiple ways and acting. It would appear utterly unlawfully, uh, in the process with the nice black uniforms and their their weapons belts. This is this is not good. Well, and let's not forget the hands in pockets. I always love seeing this because I can remember probably a drill sergeant talking and saying, get your hands out your pockets. But scruffy police dressed in black, no identifying numbers. And as we've shown in the news so far, we're living in a climate of fear and threats to our MPs. This is a police state. This is a dictatorship. Um, David, the Times uh, headline here, French philosopher Michel Foucault uh, abused boys in Tunisia. Now, the significance of this is Michel Foucault is the leader, the intellectual leader 
and was the intellectual leader of the movement that resulted in postmodernism. He uh, is at the heart of the political correct culture, of the assault on truth, of everything that is currently underpinning what I might often characterise as the far left, but is increasingly the mainstream culture of those who rule us. Uh, certainly in parties such as the Green Party, the SNP, we see these ideas um, dominant, um, things like you know, breaking down whether there's any separation between, between uh, men and women, uh, critical race theory, all of these sorts of ideas come from Foucault, um, uh, but they're also gaining hugely in the Liberal Democrats, the Labour Party and the Conservatives, they are across the political spectrum. And it is as well to remember what sort of man originated these ideas and the Times are reporting on it. They report a fellow intellectual, uh, uh, Guy Sorman, has unleashed a storm again among, amongst Parisian intellos with his claim that Foucault, who died in 1984, aged 57, was a paedophile rapist who had sex with Arab children while living in Tunisia in the late 1960s. Sorman, aged 77, said he'd visited Foucault with a group of friends on an Easter holiday trip uh, to the village of Sidi Barisad near Tunis, where the philosopher was living in 1969. Young children were running after Foucault, saying, what about me, take me, take me? He recalled last week in an interview with the Sunday Times. They were eight, nine, ten years old. He was throwing money at them, and he would say, let's meet at 10 p.m. at the usual place. This, it turned out, was the local cemetery, where he would, what they describe as make love, they mean rape, uh, the children on the gravestones. The question of consent wasn't even raised. That is the sort of man that gave rise to postmodernism. That is the underlying philosopher who has probably more influence than anything else in uh, what we see rolled out in a thousand different ways today. Yes, okay. Well, look, uh, let's move on to this. Uh, this appeared in the, uh, on the BBC a couple of days ago, the UK professor and the fake Russian agent. This is Paul McKeague, who I believe is Edinburgh University. He's a member of the Working Group on Syria Propaganda and Media, which uh, also includes uh, Piers Robinson and David Miller and people like this. Uh, people that we have uh, worked with in the past. Um, but uh, Mr. Professor McKeague has been somewhat naive, unfortunately, and has managed to get himself on the receiving end of a sting operation. Um, and uh, so what has apparent, apparently happened is that uh, somebody uh, has claimed to be a Russian agent uh, and has uh, managed to get Paul McKeague to hemorrhage quite a lot of information about uh, uh, the OPCW, uh, and some of the work they've been doing to try to expose the uh, uh, Duma uh, chemical weapons fraud. Now, I just want to highlight this article because this is uh, probably one of the main uh, reasons that he's been on, targeted in this way. Uh, this is from the Working Group on Syria Propaganda and Media website. It's called Entrepreneurial Justice Operations Related to the Syrian Conflict, Role of the Commission for International Justice and Accountability and Other Businesses Controlled by William Wiley. Uh, and uh, what he's uh, saying here basically is that, uh, uh, just to summarize, the target of civilians, targeting of civilians during the Yugoslav Civil War led to calls for resolution of such conflicts to be accompanied by, quotes, transitional justice and the formation of international tribunals to prosecute perpetrators in the Syrian conflict. One of the most prominent organizations reported to be gathering evidence of crimes allegedly committed by the Syrian government is the Commission for International Justice and Accountability, uh, established by William Harry Wiley, a Canadian former army officer. 
And really what this article is highlighting is that uh, the Commission for International Justice and Accountability is a regime change uh, organization. It's been funded by numerous Western governments, including the UK government, and is linked to the UK intelligence agency. So that's why he's been targeted. Uh, he hasn't dealt with it terribly well. It's sort of backfired a little bit, but nonetheless, uh, this is one of the other reasons for it. Uh, this is the Berlin Group 21 statement of concern over the OPCW investigation of alleged chemical weapons use uh, in Douma, Syria. And of course, at the center of this are two OPCW whistleblowers um, who are making the point that there was effectively no chemical weapons use in Douma, that the uh, narrative that was built around that was a fraud. Uh, and they have been highlighting the uh, operate, operating procedures of the OPCW to expose that. So anyway, uh, I want to highlight this article on the Grey Zone, which gives a little bit more background to this. It's called Western Government Contractor Entrapped British Scholar in Sting Operation to Cover Up Syria Corruption Scandal. And I think the main thing here is to continue to focus on the, uh, the, the Syria corruption scandal, the OPCW scandal, and the fact that there, was, uh, there has been a narrative built uh, alleging chemical weapons use in Syria, which which never happened, uh, and the evidence that there is for that. I'm going to be speaking to Piers Robinson on Thursday, uh, and hopefully we'll show a little bit of that interview on Friday's uh, news program, but we'll, we'll also put out the full uh, interview uh, as soon as possible uh, after that. Okay. Um, David, let's uh, move on to some lighter notes, uh, and uh, what's going on in Scotland? Well, Alex Salmond's formed a new political party. It's not called ALBA. Don't you say it's called ALBA because that's apparently, you know, going to be close to being criminal. It's in Gaelic. So it's ALBA. Okay. okay. ALBA. ALBA. So that's the name of the party. It means Scotland. And, um, well, some people point out that Scotland means ALBA. So, you know, it depends on your view of things. We can't be. We can't look at this from an English point of view. Even the language, we don't. We don't trust it anymore in Scotland. Some of us, anyway. Even though we all speak it, it's a very strange uh, little um, tale that they're uncomfortable with who they are. Uh, the the cartoon here is showing uh, a, a a fight between Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmon for the salt tire. And yes, there's a certain amount in that. Um, Alex Salmon's claim is that he will basically game the electoral system, uh, provide a supermajority for independence and force forward uh, independence for Scotland, even after having promised himself that that was it settled for a generation uh, only just a few years ago in 2014. So, dear Soju, you can't trust politicians. Um, one thing is quite uh, quite sure and quite sure of, however, is that the Green Party, the Scottish Green Party, the the ultimate watermelon party, green on the outside, red on the inside, they're in terrible trouble because uh, they've been gaming the system for years, and now someone else is going to steal the thunder, and um, uh, we might see many fewer Green MSPs after the next election. Uh, but uh, the lady in red, of course, uh, is uh, making the heads turn. Yes, well, this is it. Well, the nationalist voters are looking at this and they're thinking, gosh, this, this could be a way forward. And the Scottish Greens are, are about to be dumped, I think. Yes. Okay. Nobody was hurt in the making of that last image, I'd just like to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Uh, okay, and, uh, and we'll end on this one then. Tyranny. 
Tyranny, yes, he is a man with the, the state jackboot and a nice little UN logo on it, uh, on his face. Uh, and he's saying, thank you, government, for, for protecting me from a flu by completely destroying my livelihood, my job, my income, my marriage, my family, my health, my freedoms and liberties. Thanks a lot. And that's a fair summary of the proportionate and, uh, and caring response from the government over COVID-19. Yes. To which we add whatever uh, people do on a serious note to stop uh, the rise of this uh, UK dictatorship. Keep the sense of humour going, always important. Uh, I'd just like to say that uh, we received a little card. Uh, it's got a church on it and some flowers. It says Easter blessings and a few other nice things uh, for the UK column. So the person who sent that will know why we're showing it. Thank you very much for what you have sent us. And also another big um, thank you to supporters. Um, we're seeing some really amazing and, and lovely support coming in for the UK column, which is um, not just UK, it's coming from overseas as well. So thank you very much if you've uh, recently become a uh, subscriber and supporting what we're doing. Uh, if you're on the UK column live stream, we'll have an extra in 10 minutes or so. If you're watching uh, not on the live stream and you want to go and have a look at uh, Brian's uh, whistleblower video, um, that will be uh, premiering on YouTube and the UK column website at uh, 2.30 this afternoon. So just clarify that, Mike, that's Nicola, the lady who's, who's talking about her husband and the serious vaccine side effects. That's 30 minutes. I'd encourage everybody to listen to that to really understand what is going on inside the NHS. Yeah. Okay, we'll end there. Thank you very much for joining us. Keep that sense of humour. We will be back on Wednesday. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.